Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Today is Ops Academy's founder, Jonna Lee. Jonna has over four years experience as a COO and operations consultant for digital entrepreneurs. She specializes in executing scalable team and systems infrastructure and harnessing the true power of operations as a lever for compound growth. Jonna's passion lies in scaling purpose-based businesses and partnering with the founding entrepreneurs to unlock their highest potential and impact. And Jonna is one of our rare non-COO guests, but because she um, focuses on that second command space. It made way too much sense to not have her on as a guest. So, Jonna, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thank you so much, Cameron. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, and what I mean by you're not a COO is you're not a COO anymore. You've been a COO exactly. before, <laughs> and now you're really now the entrepreneur running running a business in the space. So, why don't you tell us about the Ops Academy so we know kind of the base that we're going to go off of, and then I want to go back into some of your COO experience too. Yeah, definitely. So I think many operators can relate to the fact that they probably like stumbled into operations. There is not a lot of supporting infrastructure or guidance or a clear pathway about how to really excel in this career path and how to even get into it or what it even is to start off with. And so I built CEO, uh, sorry, Ops Academy to try and close that gap. So essentially what it is, is a training program for operators by operators, and it provides all of those key missing pieces. It's got a community of fellow operators that you're able to pull support from. Like, you know, that with COO Alliance, how important community is. It's got like a guiding set of content so that people can close any knowledge gaps that they're walking into the operations role with. It's got live coaching so that people have personalized mentorship. Like my goal with it really was to help be the bridge between operationally talented people and what they actually need to start or to up-level in their career as an operator. Okay, that's a really cool statement that you just said said as well, which was to take operationally talented people and you're kind of bridging them into their career. So what do you identify as the operational talent? What, What do you look for or what do you see? Totally. I call it level three thinking, which is just a word I made up, but it is, I see it as complex systems analysis. Like a talent is just that underlying worldview, that underlying lens. And I find that the best operators all have the same lens, which is when we look at anything, literally anything, could be a business, could be Thanksgiving dinner with your family. You can't help but break it down through patterns, systems, the interplay between these various systems and how that's creating new cause and effect over here, right? Like it is any operator sees the world that way. And so when I'm looking for an operational talent, that's what I'm looking for. Add in growth-mindedness and, an, and a willingness and ability to learn. And that's a person that I believe if they make the decision could choose to become an amazing operator because that underlying lens is there. And operations, what we call operations, I think is just a set of skills and knowledge and experience and tools that you overlay on that talent to create world-class operations. The skills and stuff that can be taught. That's what I do in Ops Academy. The mm-hmm. talent is something that you either have or you don't. And so that's what I look for when I'm prospecting whether somebody would be a good fit for an operations position or my coaching program or any one of these things. It's funny. I think about the the book, the Dr. Seuss book, when they have thing one and thing two, and it's kind of, mm. they need to have both. I've always said that entrepreneurs have to have the entrepreneurial DNA and then right. they can learn the entrepreneurial skill set. But I don't believe yep. you can, I don't believe you can become an entrepreneur. You can, you can gain entrepreneurial skills, but you either have mm. that DNA or you don't. 
I agree. Mm -hmm. I think people are either born and have that operational DNA um, or they're not. Talk about the size of the clients that you have. What's the typical the size of the companies that you target or work with? Yeah. So I love working with small to medium sized businesses. So from a revenue perspective, we're looking anywhere between like 100K per month to a million per month is kind of my sweet spot. And from team size, obviously, that can vary widely depending on the business model. But I generally find that operations is probably like the fourth or fifth higher that that company is bringing in once mm. they have a person representing each of sort of the core functional departments in the company. Yeah. And then you're going to take those people that have that operational talent, as you say, and that level three thinking, and, and you're going to help give them the skills to then excel in their job or to do better with the company they're with. Precisely. So what are some of the skills? What would you kind of, if you were to outline a curriculum mm. or a, a baseline area of skills, what would those be? Yeah, definitely. And I think that it also depends on the level of operator role that you're trying to step into, right? COO versus, for example, ops manager. I think at the starting point, we're looking at uh, the ability to design and execute systems. We're looking at the ability to manage communication and optimize communication within a company. And then basic team building skills, hiring, training, onboarding, management. I think that that is baseline skill set for anybody trying to serve in an operations department, especially mm -hmm. for a small company where the operator, let's be honest, is doing everything. Like it's not ops for marketing, right? It's ops across the entire company. Mm -hmm. Layering on top of that, I think as we start to ascend through head of operations, director of operations, COO, we're layering in you know, executive leadership, executive team building, um, the ability to build and manage a high-performance team and team of managers. Um, and then all of the business owner kind of lenses, finance, strategic decision-making, strategic alignment, et cetera. Yeah. It's interesting the way that you kind of see that in three, in, in almost three, uh, three layers or three levels that you're going through. Cause you're right. There, there is that once the team is built, the executive leadership starts to come in and then, yeah, you definitely do have the operational, um, the real deep operational skills that, that have to be learned. Yeah. Where do you think people struggle in being operators? Where do people as second in commands struggle most in their roles? Oh my gosh. From what I've seen, honestly, I would say the greatest point of struggle is in advocating for themselves and for the boundaries of their role. And that might be unique to the companies that I work with, but oftentimes these operators are stepping into a team where the operations role doesn't pre-exist. They're having to build it as they fill it. And they're having to educate a team and a company that has never worked with operations before, has never had that role filled. And so there's a ton of um, impetus on them to essentially tell their team what operations is, educate them on that, and then draw boundaries around their role. And what I find is that when operators are unaware of how to do that or unsupported in their doing of that, oftentimes they just end up as this like everything else person, right? Mm. Like the just the firefighter or the like garbage disposal man, <laughs> no offense. And they are, they are because they're visionary, their team doesn't understand how operations drives value to the company, it just gets assigned to this sort of default mode where everything goes. And there is no success there. Like you can't wow. succeed at being the everything person. And so the greatest thing that I work with my operators on, particularly for these small businesses, is what is operations? How does it drive value to the company? What is it and what is it not? And how can you respectfully but firmly set boundaries around your role? so that you are set up for success and only doing the things that only you can do. Okay. Now you are not old. 
you were, uh, <laughs> Thank you're, you. but you are, op- <laughs> you're operationally very savvy. I, I got to get like a, a screenshot so people can see like the background. You're sitting in like this Star Trek kind of pod. What do you call this? Or? My, my space pod. I do space love this pod. Yeah. You're sitting pod. in yep. the space pod, but you're, you're clearly not like a 50 something. Where have you gained all the wisdom in this operations? Has it been from your past roles? Has it been from, from school? Has it been from the you know, school of hard knocks where, or are you just super, super high in EQ? I am entirely self-taught. I did not do any formal education around operations. A lot of what I learned came from, and I think this is, again, true for a lot of operators, what intuitively made sense to me, and then testing that within a business, and then cross-checking that against what mentors said. So I got really lucky with a couple of key mentors that didn't mind me constantly coming to them and saying, hey, is this right? What am I missing? Where are my gaps here? And they were really there for validation to make sure that what I was seeing and what my ideas were, were not just totally off track. Mm-hmm. Everything else just happened through trial and error of learning a thing, testing it in the business, seeing what data I got back from that business, and then iterating from there. But I read a lot of books and I still do. Favorite books? Oh my gosh. Um, Multipliers, Liz Wiseman, unbelievable. First Break All the Rules. Those are my top two when it comes to leadership and management. I love The, the Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. Scaling up was really helpful when it came to like how, what is operations and how do I start to operate a company? I have quite an extensive list. It would depend on the topic. Have you read one um, or seen one called the high growth handbook? No. Grab it. It's really fucking tight. Super, super impressed with the um, operational depth and the sound bites. And um, it's really, really, really strong. And it's written almost like a quasi textbook slot. Like it's kind of like scaling up, but it's easier to read. Nice. And, and instead of taking like 12 pages to describe something, it takes four, but then it gives three <laughs> case studies to talk about it as well, which I think is a really unique way to position it. It's really Lovely. good content. Okay. So, I will absolutely check that out. Thank you. Yeah. I, I love the, but I also love your whole like testing and then cross-checking with mentors. And was there anything that you were working on operationally that mentors said no? you know, know you're wrong or know you're off track. Any, any, this sounds worse, like egotistical, but no, like, I think, (laughs) I think what helped me understand that actually operations is something that intuitive, like I have the talent for, right. Intuitively, I figure it out and I kind of land there, right. Most of the time was by cross-checking with mentors and having that constant positive feedback loop that says, Nope, you've got it. You covered it. You thought it through. That is correct. And I needed that when I was starting my journey because I didn't know what I didn't know. And getting that feedback loop enough times helped build my own confidence as an operator that said, cool, I don't know exactly what the best way forward is, but this is my best guess. And I feel confident enough in my track record of success to take a stab at this and then let the data speak for itself and let the business tell me what I messed up. Love that. <clears throat> what do you think your members um, of the Ops Academy, what are they learning most? What's the, been the biggest surprise for you? Hmm. Bringing back to what the biggest challenge is, the greatest thing that everybody always comes back and says, my biggest aha moment was when, is around the definition of operations, was around coming to understand how they their unique talent, that again, they've had their entire lives, can translate into a vehicle of growth for a company. And that operations is that vehicle. When that clicked for them and they realized, cool, my highest value, my highest value contribution is not just be the on top of it person, be the everything else person, be the generally competent person, which is the roles that they've assigned themselves, the identity they've assigned themselves their whole life. And now I can actually say operator, integrator, 
director of ops, right? Like when they can put an identity and a label around themselves and that label protects them from all of the things that are not their job, that I think is the, mm. the biggest aha moment for the people going through my program. I was going to ask you about that in the, the kind of everything role. So what things are not their job? What what have you commonly seen that starts getting dumped on them other than you mentioned the garbage man or the waste yeah. disposal person? And yeah, I missed, totally. I missed that when you said it, which was funny. <laughs> the, the, the garbage man, and by that, I mean, just like, here's the mess, go clean it up, yeah. right? That person, the firefighter person of like, something's wrong and we don't know how to fix it. So go fix that. I see executive assistant a lot like the visionary just essentially treating this person as hey can you schedule this can you take notes on this meeting can you reschedule my call right those sorts of things i see a lot hmm. um and i would say the rebound board is what i call the role the where do i find this or can you help me out with this question or who do i talk to for this the person that just again the generally competent person the person that is always known for getting things done yeah and so they unintentionally back themselves into this corner where they spend all day just taking other people's balls and putting it through the basket when it is not their job, right? Like the account manager should be responsible for solving that client fire or figuring out that client issue or figuring out where that client resource is. But because there's this, I call it the magic vending machine, this person that will you can always go to and get the right answer without setting boundaries around that, you will naturally become that go-to person and it will prevent you. Your day will just be filled reacting to that as opposed to taking proactive steps towards the operations of the company. So how do they prevent that kind of monkey getting tossed on their back? How do they prevent that kind of vending machine, you know, use of themselves? What do they, what do they say? What do they do? Yep. The biggest, and I do so much coaching on this because it is so hard. It's around learning to say no and truly reframing no as an act of service, right? If we think about raising kids, the most spoiled kids in the world are the ones that always get everything that they want. They never have to work for it. We know this to be true. Your Uh team is exactly the same way. And so operators, in my experience, are incredibly service-oriented people. It's one of the common traits that I see amongst us. And because of that, we always want to say yes. We always want to give them the Google Drive link, even though we've given it to them five times before, or give them that answer, even though we've already answered that question for them. But we're unintentionally spoiling our kids. Yeah, And so it's the reframe that says, actually, how do I respectfully but firmly say no and hand the ball back to them as opposed to carrying it over the finish line, putting it through the, I'm mixing metaphors now. Yeah, it's good. Um, like how, how do we say no? And how do we reprogram our own neural pathways that says that's not rude. That's not spoiled. That's not you being lazy. That's actually an act of service that enables your team to have the opportunity to struggle to try a thing, to mess up a thing, to not know the answer to a thing, because we know that that is actually where people grow and learn the most. Mm-hmm. I learned, I, Simon Sinek and I used to talk about this back in the day when he was on our board of advisors, like 20 years ago, um, years before he wrote his book, Start With Why. And we were talking about how people would come to us with questions and they'd say, you know, um, do you know how to solve this? And he'd say, yes, I do, but I'm not going to. And like, yes. you can go away and come back and tell me how you'd solve it. So they'd go away and they'd come back and say, well, I think we should do this. And he'd say, well, then go do it. Like, don't come right. and tell me, you just go do it. Like he kept kind of right. deflecting off in a fun so way. Good. How do you say no to the CEO? How do you say no? And especially the entrepreneurial CEO that, you know, goes away to a mastermind event and comes home with 74 new ideas and they want to start 16 totally. of them tomorrow. Totally. How do you say no or not now? The golden question. Hmm. Something that I think, A, it comes down to the dynamic that you have with your visionary to begin with, right? So 
one of the things that I make sure every operator has with their visionary when they are first setting up that relationship is what I call a success meeting. And it is a way of getting on the same page and setting that relationship up for success from the very beginning. And one of the core pillars in that conversation is around strategic alignment, meaning what are the most important things that this company is working to execute? And specifically, what do I, as your operator, take primary responsibility for? So to make sure that at the very beginning, the visionary and the integrator are on the same page about what is the integrator's to-do list? And then when they come to you with five more ideas, brilliant line that I learned from a friend of mine, great. What would you like me to take off the list to make room for that priority? Mm -hmm. Because once you make the visionary aware of the opportunity cost of their ideas, and that actually you can't just do a million things at once, you it's, it's again, very respectful, but it's a way of just handing the ball back and saying, cool, we already agreed that I have these five other priorities over here. If your new idea, if you can actually justify to yourself that this new idea is more important than what we already agreed to, beautiful. I'll add that onto the list. Yep. If not. But what's it bump? Exactly. But what's it bump? Yeah, I love that. Okay. So you talked about, about the strategic alignment and prim- primary responsibility. How do you get that strategic alignment with the CEO? And by the way, you, you keep using the terms visionary and integrator. So those are the terms that Gino Wickman used from Traction and yep. Gino and Mark Winters used in their book, Rocket Fuel, both great books. Yep. Um, so how do you gain, how does that integrator slash CEO or COO gain the kind of um, the, the strategic alignment with the CEO or visionary? How does that happen? I think it's first important to remind the visionary what their job is, the CEO, what their job is in all of this, right? Which is to set the strategic vision for the company. At the end of the day, there is nobody else represented on the team who can fill that service, that function for the business. And mm. your role and where you can support them in that as COO is to hold them accountable to doing that. So at a structural level, it means making sure that there is time uh, to have a strategic meeting on an ongoing basis where you're constantly looking at that strategy, analyzing it, answering questions that the, the business is bringing to you. Focus on it because ultimately they need to do that. It's time blocking time into their calendar for deep think time. If you've never read The Road Less Stupid, amazing book to give your visionary, your CEO, around why their job is to sit and to think. Mm. Cool. So I can help you in that by giving you this book and then carving out four hours of your day every or your days every single week to have deep think time so that you are set up for success in doing your job. It's about having in-person, like regular in-person events where you are stepping out of the day-to-day and focusing on the strategy. Like there are things that we can do to create an ecosystem around our visionary where they are doing their best work. But that is different than us choosing the strategic vision because that is outside the scope of our role. Yeah, it's so intuitive. The What's interesting as well is that the CEOs or the visionaries, once they hire the COOs, once they get these integrators in place, they they often tend to struggle with what the hell am I supposed to do now? Totally. You know, a lot of my day-to-day has been delegated to someone. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I'll just keep messing around in the business like yeah. I used to. Is that how you kind of pull them back is keep reminding them what their new role is now, what their new responsibilities are, and then creating that space for them to, to be strategic and to stay, stay in the visionary spot? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's a lot of education around, cool, you finally get to be CEO. Because let's be honest, up until the moment I was here, you were only spending a fraction of your time actually in that role. You were also COO because you had to be. You don't have to be that anymore. And in fact, and this is an important educational piece, 
you messing around in the data of the business actually is counterproductive. Oftentimes, what I see is that CEOs with white space on their calendar start to create problems so that they can go in and solve them because mm-hmm. that is what they're used to. And the white space makes them uncomfortable, so they fill it. And so I think it's important that as CEOs start to get more of their time back, that's supported by, again, educational resources, the road less stupid, the four obsessions of the extraordinary executive, good to great. Like there are so many books out there on how to be a world-class CEO. It's the business inviting them and challenging them to take the next step in their own personal development as an entrepreneur, which is cool. How do you be an executive? How do you Mm -hmm. be a CEO? That's not something that you were born with. You have to learn it just like you learned every other skill that got you to this point. But let me just make yourself aware of that and then set you up for success so that you can embark on that next stage of your journey. You, you talked about entrepreneurs stumbling into operations when you know they've got this mm. business up and running and all of a sudden they're kind of stuck into the day-to-day. When do you feel is the right time for these visionaries to hire their first integrator? When is it the right time for these uh, companies to hire their first COO? And then, yeah, let's start with that. Yeah. At early stages, first off, I would say it depends on the proclivity of the entrepreneur, the business owner. I have met the rare business owner that actually doesn't mind operations and they're actually pretty good at it. Those people I think can hold on to the role longer because they're doing a better job with it. For the for most entrepreneurs, like probably the 90% of them that hate systems, hate SOPs, they see it as this like necessary evil that somebody told them they needed in their business. So, okay, fine, I'll build it. Those people need to delegate that role much earlier because it is not only, it's like um, the zone of genius, right? It's so far outside their zone of genius that it is taking more time for a worse outcome. And so they need to delegate that faster because it represents an efficiency gain earlier in the life cycle of the company, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So once you've got your first integrator in place, you're kind of, you're not stumbling along, but you're, you're gaining some traction. Uh, you're, mm-hmm. you're growing the organization. At what point have you outgrown the person that you're trying to give the skills to? And when do you need to bring in someone who's done it before? Have you seen anything Mm, around that? Totally. When does competency, you know, when does someone's competency get outgrown by the scale of the organization that it, that, that it's not okay to be learning it. You need to have done it. I don't know if there is a hard and fast rule about when, but I will say that the business will always speak to you. Like, it will tell you when that is the case. And I think that the best leadership teams that I've ever seen actually identify that for themselves. Nobody has to tell them as, hey, I started this company and I was pretty good at marketing. So I ended up as CMO, but actually the scope of question and scope of challenge that we as a leadership team are coming up against in the marketing department is not something that I'm able to solve. Mm. And I think I need somebody in who has more experience. Yeah, I agree. The, the business does speak to you. And it's kind of that when you have doubt, you have no doubt, right? That you just right. you just know that the changes have to happen. You mentioned yep. that the, the the you know the really good operations people have that level three thinking as you coined it. And you know, one of them is that they can't help but see the systems. How do they not get frustrated that people just aren't as smart as they are? People aren't using the systems mm. they're putting in place, or like, you know, they're trying to codify everything and people are winging it, you know, not using the systems, not using the playbooks. Totally. I, it starts with one reframe, which is not that people aren't as smart as you. It's that people don't care. Mm. They don't see the company the way that you see the company. They don't see anything wrong 
with doing something that inefficiently. They don't see the gap that you see because they have a different worldview. They don't see the company the way you do. And thank God, because they need to see the company the way a marketer does or a visionary does or fill in the blank, right? So first it starts with, it's not that there's something wrong with them. It is that they are looking at the exact same set of data that you are, and they're pulling a different outcome out of it. And that leads, I think, to the second part of this, which is that, cool, that's the reality that we face as integrators. What do we do about that? Well, we can take ownership for how we roll something out. We can take ownership for other people's behaviors in how we present, in how we persuade, in how we influence the members of our team to adopt that system or not. And we can take ownership for the fact that they don't see it the way we do. So we can't present it in the way that it would work for a room full of integrators. Mm. You have to present it in the way a marketer sees it. You have to present it in the way a salesperson will care about it. And that's a learned skill. Influence is a learned skill. And it's something that I had to learn because I utterly failed at my last CEO. I will own that. At my last CEO position, I did a horrible job at rolling out the systems and I got very little buy-in as a result. And so I had to go back to the books and be like, cool, how do I influence people? How do I persuade? What I learned is that knowing what to do is only about 40% of the job. It's the less important half. Being able to get people to do it is the true art of world-class operations. And that is much harder to do. Yeah. And you talked about, you know, the optimizing systems and team building as core competencies, right? If you can't actually, when we were building an auto body chain years ago, it's called Gerber Auto Collision in the US now. We used to say, sell them, don't tell them. And if Mm. we could actually sell the employees or sell the franchisees on using a system, they would use it. But if we were telling them to do it, no matter how right we were, they weren't going to go after it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. How does the COO and, or how does the COO or the, the integrator, how do they build trust with the visionary? I think trust is so critical that how do they build trust and continue to build trust? Huge. I think it, it starts by recognizing that trust is built over time. And like we do anything else, systemizing it, right? Like what creates trust? Trust is built from a series of promises kept. So how can you set yourself up as an integrator stepping into a role And set yourself up with a set of promises that you are able to keep. Because what all you're doing neurologically for the visionary is saying, hey, when you hand me this thing, I get it done. And I get it done better than you would have gotten it done. So Mm -hmm. don't you want to hand me the next thing? And I think that that cycle can build until the visionary feels comfortable, especially if they've never worked with an integrator before, to give you bigger and bigger projects, more and more autonomy, more and more decision-making, more and more space within the organization. And I think it's recognizing that that is a process and that we can set ourselves up for success with it. Namely, when you step into a role, get clear on what those initial deliverables are, have clear timelines attached to those deliverables, and make sure that those are deliverables that you can meet. Because you keeping that promise to the visionary is going to go so far when it comes to them being able to trust you with the next set of deliverables. Do you see that the the integrators are really just super happy being integrators and they don't want to go off and start their own companies? I find that entrepreneurs tend to worry that they've got these second in commands that are all of a sudden going to want to go rogue and start their own business, but it doesn't seem to happen. Do you see anything around that? I think it's the difference between an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur, right? Mm. And that is something that A, you as a visionary can filter for in your interview process. We can interview like I filter for that when I'm hiring members of my team, right? Because I want to hire people that are so good that they could start their own business. But I also want to hire people where they don't have the impulse to do so. And I think people, business owners uh, undervalue 
the security that they provide to their team members. And so somebody who has all of the competency and talent to start their own company, but genuinely does not want to deal with the responsibility and the chaos and the fluctuation and the insecurity that comes from starting your own company, they would so much rather work for you, provided that you are constantly providing an environment where they're feeling challenged, they have the growth, they feel like all of that talent and skill that they bring to the table is being optimized and is being executed at its highest potential. And that's your job as a visionary is to create that workplace environment so that why would they leave? They're going to trade serving the highest potential with you for like starting their own business, hating it, working at a way lower level, and then ultimately quitting because they don't like it. Like, no, nobody's going to take that choice, provided that you've provided the right environment and the right competing offer that will always win out. Yeah, I love that. It, it's funny. I think most people would never start a business if they'd ever started a business. Right? Totally. If they went out there and started, like, what the fuck? this is way harder <laughs> this than I thought. Is the worst. I am never going to do this again. Um, but operator wants to focus on sales and marketing. Like I have to do that in my own business right now, Cameron. It sucks. Like it, yeah. I am bad at it. I'm having to force myself to learn it because I, because I need to. But it's not the most enjoyable part. That's not why I started a company, right? So most operators, when they really sit down and think of the reality of starting a business, I think they find that it's outside their zone of genius. And it's actually not something that they want to take on. Yeah, it's crazy town. All right. Um, You've got a new ops person coming on board, a new integrator you've just hired. What's the onboarding look like? What's the ideal Mm -hmm. onboarding to really get them up to speed? Amazing. I actually just built this out as part of my hiring product because I saw so many visionaries mess this up when I placed an operator with them. So it's a couple of key pieces. Number one, first 24 hours, present your culture deck. Zappos, Netflix, they have examples if you need them. Vision, mission, behavioral standards, behavioral expectations, core values. Number two, present what I call their job scorecard, which is just a definition of success in the role. What does an A player look like in this role? What are they able to accomplish? I'm talking metrics, deliverables, timelines, as tactical, as tangible as you can. Why does this role exist, right? What is the purpose of this role in the company? Like get clear on this stuff at the beginning and present that to them and transfer ownership to them. And this is true for onboarding anyway, any like role, by the way. Mm -hmm. So you have your operator job scorecard. That's the definition of success. They understand the ecosystem in which they're stepping into, the core values, vision, mission. And then I set everybody on a 14-day boot camp, which is an intensive, pre-planned, hour-by-hour, 14-day intensive of here is the how that you need to know to do your job. Here's just how the company works, the product, the systems, the yada, yada, yada. And for a lot of visionaries, because they don't actually know what the operator needs, I recommend a couple of things. A, make sure that your operator has a one-on-one with all of the key players on the team. Make sure that they have deep focus time to just deep dive into the systems. Just go full, like Dora the Explorer, get in there, see what they see, right? They should be hopping on all of the team meetings and understanding the communication flow, the dynamics of the team, right? Just let them go into full exploration mode and then make sure that you have a really tight communication rhythm with them, like daily, to answer questions, provide context, identify gaps, like give them the information that they need to understand what it is that they're looking at. The best operators come after out of a two-week boot camp like that with their list of mm-hmm. here's what I need to do in this job, right? I'm telling you what needs to get done because this is the lens that has been missing in your company up until now. So let me inform you. And then you get to have the success meeting that says, yes, I agree with that one. No, I think this is higher priority. How about we save that one for the next quarter? 
et cetera. And then away we go. I love it. I love that they are actually coming back in with their insights. And then you kind of have the meeting of the minds where you, you sit down and get in sync and decide what the plan is off that. I think that if you tell somebody what the right way of, this is also my concern with SOPs, believe it or not. If you tell somebody the right way to do something, you are tunnel visioning them because you have authority over them. So if you say it's the right way, it's the right way. Why would I look anywhere else? Mm -hmm. Versus if you give them a blank canvas and say, hey, find what you find. And then you tell me what you think the most important things are. Now they are really open-minded and they're free to explore and they will source new ideas that you didn't know needed to be looked at, had, et cetera. Yeah, I love that. Um, I started laughing when you said Dora the Explorer and I just kept thinking, you know, Swiper, no swiping. I'm like, I don't know where Swiper fits into the org. (laughs) How do we keep Swiper away from the org chart? So talk about, um, about placing an operator. If you're a CEO, a visionary, and you're looking to hire an operator, how do you decide what you're looking at? Like I would have been a horrible COO for mm. 90% of companies out there, but I was yeah. perfect with Brian. So how do you know what you're looking for? It's a wonderful question. A, you have to go back to the resources that you have, your core values, your job scorecard, right? That job scorecard tool, I actually recommend building before you hire. And I recommend building it for any role before you hire. And again, it's that definition of success prior to looking at any candidate. Because as human beings, we're terribly biased. Like we are actually a really bad judge of other human beings. Mm. And so having essentially an avatar pre-built where the interview process now isn't one of building that avatar, but of just recognizing it, that sets you up for success. And so if you have a clear picture of who, like questions I would ask yourself if you're the visionary, who have I worked extremely well with in the past? And what do those people all have in common? What communication standards am I looking for? What level of proactive action am I looking for? What level of uh, risk am I willing to accept, right? Like what are the core behavioral traits that you have as a visionary that make you unique? And then build that into the scorecard so that you can go out and recognize the person that would thrive in your environment. But you have to have that predefined because otherwise you're just going to go with the person that you like the most. Mm. But you guys might have two way different risk assessment matrices when it comes down to it. Do you, are you following the methodology from top grading Brad or Jeff Smart's book or Brad Smart's book or Jeff's yeah. book? Who is that where you're kind of grabbing scorecard from? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, it is that those core three sections are what I mm-hmm. use in my scorecard. I've just taken that tool and I've moved it forward as well into the training, the onboarding and the ongoing management process. Yeah, same, same, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So then you've kind of got the interview process dialed. You're using that system. You've got the onboarding and that 14 day kind of onboarding process. Go mm-hmm. back even even before that interviewing process again. Do you work with recruiters at all? And if you're working with recruiters, how do you try to line them up for success? My company is the recruiter. You so are we only yeah, we only place operations roles, but we have essentially a rigorous intake form for any client who wants to work with us. We mm-hmm. interview their team directly to get a pulse on their team like company culture. So we're pretty comprehensive in pulling in the data that allows us with confidence to go out and find the right operator for that environment. Got it. Okay. Yep. And then, so if you're, if you're doing that and you're running the recruiter, where do you think candidates that are applying for these operator roles, how can they help themselves? How can they mm. get hired easier or better? Yeah. I think the first thing is as an employee and it's easier now than ever is to approach your job search process from a place of abundance, as opposed to scarcity, meaning You're not the right integrator for 90% of companies out there. Your job when you're hopping on interviews is to qualify them, 
just as much as they are qualifying you. And if you can qualify them even earlier, like when you're reading the job description, so much the better. Don't apply for the role just because you have the skills to do it. Apply for the role because that's a company that you could see yourself working at. And if you're not sure, come in with a set of interview questions that allows you to gather the data you need to make sure that you're stepping into a workplace environment that is going to allow you to thrive and where you're able to do your best work, right? The best, I always know I'm hiring an A player or interviewing an A player when they're asking me more questions than I'm asking them because Mm. it means they recognize that they have a unique talent and they're just looking for the right company that earns the right to work with them. Yeah, so you're trying to get them to turn the tables in the process as soon as possible. I find that they will do it regardless yeah. of whether or not I'm trying. I'm not trying to, but when I ask, and do you have any questions for me? And they're like, mm, nope, nothing at this time. To me, that just means they have given no thought yeah. towards what company they need to be working at. Yeah, that makes my skin crawl. I, I just yeah. can't, can't handle those ones. All right, final couple of questions. What advice would you have to people that are in that integrator role now? How can you help them with the next stage of their career? Other than the obvious, you know, um, get engaged in the, in the ops academy or or the CEO Alliance, how, how do they grow themselves? Number one, have the conversation with your visionary and make sure that the company that you are currently at is offering you the opportunity for that growth and that you understand where that growth is represented. Meaning, cool, what projects can you take on that represent a new skill set for you and that you're going to have to develop this skill set in the act of executing that deliverable? That's growth, right? But you have to be on the same page with your visionary of, hey, I'm going to take this on I'm going to be bad at it and I'm going to learn how to do it as I go because that represents my next stage of growth as your operator, right? And again, a visionary doing their job is going to be looking for that. Their job is to provide an environment where everybody is constantly growing and taking on challenges that are involving them in their role and their expertise in their role. So A, if you have run that analysis and you're determined that there is no room for growth in your company, there's no room for growth in your company. Yeah, There is only one decision, which is maybe not tomorrow, but at some point you're going to need to look elsewhere in order to accomplish that next stage. And that is on you. If your visionary is not going to provide that, if your company is not going to provide that, change your environment. That's interesting. All right, let's go back to yourself. If you were just starting out in your first operations role, oh gosh, what advice would you give yourself back then? I think it would be, and I've mentioned this, but it's just the understanding that A, nobody else in your company thinks like you. So don't walk in with the assumption that they will. Don't get frustrated when they won't and take ownership and use your own internal empathy to figure out how to do your job in a way that resonates with them, right? How do you roll out a system such that they want that system more than you want it? How do you reshuffle priorities on your visionaries to-do list in such a way that makes them more excited to do this thing than you are? How do you influence and persuade people? I would tell myself, early Jana, that that is 60% of the job. Learn it. Learn it alongside the what to do. Because the world's best system is useless if nobody will use it. I love it. Jana Lee, the founder of the Ops Academy. This is huge content. I super appreciative of you sharing your time and your wisdom with us. Thank you for being a guest on the Second Command podcast. Absolutely, Cameron. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.